0: Content warnings for this episode include depictions of incest in the film, discussion of cults, abusive relationships, and violence in relation to the film.
1: Horror Nerds at Church, a podcast where we take a deep dive into a horror film and talk about what it can teach us about God, the Bible, and each other. My name is Joe, and I am the undecided grad student of this podcast who will later on steal Pace's thesis idea.
0: Oh, hey. <laughs> um, we can fight over our thesis idea, just like some of the characters in here to... <laughs> I'm Pace, by the way, and I am a person inside of a bear suit, or at least that's what I'm told every time I go to DC's bear bar. But uh,
1: yeah, I, I think I think DC's uh, vision of that might be a little bit different than what they have up in northern Sweden.
0: Well, I am told that I'm smoking hot. So, well, yes, just you like are. that. Just like Christian was. <laughs> at the end of the movie he was definitely smoking and hot and in yeah, pain
1: well yeah that that he was literally <laughs> <laughs> so with Steve Pace any uh any announcements any any uh anything you want to share
0: let's see well this is our first of our kind of one-off episodes post-Halloween. So right. we are doing midsummer. We'll talk more about that
1: mm-hmm. in a
0: little bit. But it's exciting. So we're doing five kind of one-off films. Yeah. Beyond that, what has been going on recently? I, th- I don't know. There's something I wanted to say. Oh, that's what it is. I've been watching The Conjuring films. um The Conjuring Universe uh in preparation. Because they just released The Conjuring Three called The Conjuring the Devil Made Me Do It uh, on HBO Max as part of like Warner Brothers releasing everything simultaneously in theaters and on HBO Max. And so I was watching all of them for that. And uh, first of all, we definitely need to do this for one of our seasons for the podcast because the, the films are chock full of religious imagery. But two, I was kind of researching about the real life Ed and Lorraine Warren and they are kind of not good people, it seems. So... That'll be interesting if we go down the road with The Conjuring to maybe talk a little bit about the real life Ed, Ed and Lorraine Warren and compare it with the film. Because in the film, they're like lovely people. Patrick Wilson and was Fe- Vera, F- I don't know how to say her last name, For Magia or something of like that. But they're lovely in the film, but in the films, but real life, he he was like anti-Semitic. Oh, my God. All sorts of shit. It's just not good people. And also, a lot of their stuff was turned out to be hoaxes. so. I think that'll be a fun season. What about you, Joe? What have you been up to?
1: Well, that sounds like it's going to be an interesting season. I'm definitely <laughs> down for a conjuring, a series of conjuring episodes. Uh, so for me, I have discovered, I think I'm going to date myself here, but I have discovered the great novelty of purchasing movies <laughs> um, by streaming. So what's the surprise there, right? Netflix is everywhere and we all watch it. But like, it's a different thing to own a movie, which I don't know about you, Pace, but I feel like people don't know that feeling anymore because you can just stream whatever now as part of a subscription package. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, back in our day, you could own a movie. You could go to the store and you could buy the DVD or the two disc special edition or whatever. There used to be this mall chain called, I think it was called sunset motion picture company.
0: Yeah. You remember
1: that? Yes. And so what they would do is they would take movie reservations and then, you know, and then they would um, throw in like a special deal with the movie reservation. Like, you know, if you reserve your movie now you would get like a, a poster or something. Oh yeah. and so mm-hmm. the, you had to pay, you know, prepay for your movie, um but not only were you guaranteed the movie, but then you got like, you know, something something extra. And so like that is not a thing anymore in our streaming era., uh, so for mid mids midSomar, by the way, it's midSomar because mm-hmm. I was watching Ari Ari Aster in an interview, and that's the way he was saying. it. <laughs> uh, so for this movie, Um, I screened the theatrical release with you, and then I decided to catch the director's cut, which has an additional 24 minutes of footage. And, uh, the only, uh, provider that was selling that it was exclusive to Apple. So I bought it. And interestingly, when you purchase a movie, um, through Apple and, uh, it, it's, it, 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 and when it's attached with special features, uh, they put a menu on it the way you would see it at a, a regular DVD back in the day, so it's just it's just an interesting experience to see how you know the joy of owning a movie has like become so modern now. You know you don't have to go uh, to the store and put in a reservation anymore. You can you literally just with a couple of uh swipes of your phone. You can own the movie. So yeah, I had the, uh, I had the uh, good fortune of seeing the d- the director's cut of this movie, and it, and the bonus features are really interesting too. Hence, why I know how to pronounce the title of the movie.
0: <laughs> yeah, but not but apparently not Ari Aster, who I believe his name is Ari, not Ari, as you said. Oh oh oh! I stand corrected. <laughs> I stand corrected. Ari, love it. But yeah. um... That surprised me because I've long wanted to see the director's cut. I've done a lot of reading up on it and stuff because I, I, Mm. spoiler alert, we'll talk about this in a little bit. But I absolutely love this movie, and um, but I knew they released the director's cut in Blu-ray format, but it was fifty dollars, like special edition, and I was like, I I would be willing to spend it because it came in this like gorgeous case with like photo like i'm a photo book and all this stuff Mm. so it's totally worth the money my book but it's like i also don't have 50 dollars. i'm a grad student like that's a lot of money so i did not realize that one could buy it digitally but then joe told me that that it was available on itunes so now i definitely want to get that um but so hopefully i can see that sometime soon Uh, but joe's going to be our resident director's cut edition person for today uh, kind of like I was for the one Rob Zombie movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you know what, Pace? I I think I should say up front that the additional 24 minutes of footage don't change the movie a whole lot. The most significant difference is, and, and we'll go into detail about this later, is one, one important scene um, that, I don't know, Depending on how you feel about the movie as it was released into the theaters, uh, it could be take it or leave it situation, you mm-hmm. know. So
0: interesting, yeah. Um So what about uh, so? Of course, we're talking about Midsummer. You can also say Midsummer. A lot of people say it that way. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Ari Aster has said that he doesn't mind if people say it that way, but like Joe mm-hmm. said, somar is the pronunciation he himself uses. It I think came I'm out in twenty oh sorry go ahead
1: i just want to say i think i'm going to say it midsummer because i am a savage american who clearly doesn't know how to speak other languages and rudely (laughs) interrupts his co-host continue
0: (laughs) no no it's all good so it came out in 2019 directed by ari Aster, who is most famous for uh hereditary which Mm. is another kind of art house horror film similar to this that came out a few years back and then um he's done a, quite a few short films. One that's noticeable is a uh, strange thing about the Johnsons, which I've seen. You can f- find it online um, to watch it. And it's a really dark kind of horror film that talks about a uh, family going through like some incest issue, uh, like between the father and son. And it's just really the son, unlike in um, the son is kind of the instigator of the incest here and it's just a really weird kind of dark creepy movie but at the same time like really well done for a short film so it's just so um if that kind of interests you definitely look that up but it's but just know of course all the content notices and warnings before you watch that cuz it uh-huh. kind of does not shy away from confronting some of that uh but that's the only one of his short films i've seen but i know he's done quite a few how Uh,
1: how do you how do you watch that is it available on streaming or
0: i i don't remember how i've seen it uh quite honestly i think i I don't i don't think it's on youtube but it might have been like released to vimeo or something so maybe that's where i saw it well this is interesting
1: i I don't know if uh, Google is becoming the Matrix or what, but I started typing in the title of the movie, and it auto-completed the title of the movie as if it were expecting me to be looking for this movie.
0: Yeah, so um, very interesting uh, movie, and kind of already like th- that movie. I think came out like or the short film he did like ten years ago or so. So already, yeah. oh yeah. So um, already, there's you can kind of see he has a really great eye for um, film directing and direction and stuff, but also a really good way uh, of one of the things I think we're going to talk a lot about in this movie is just creating this really like tense and um, atmosphere for a film so uh, that you can see that already in uh, that movie. So what were your uh, uh, first memories of this film? Of Midsummer? Yeah.
1: So again, marketing did a really great job and I saw posters of it. actually, no, 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 no no. Um, I it, it, the trailer was attached to some other art house film that I went to watch that I now can't remember. Um, <laughs> but I know it was an art house movie because I went to one of the one of the landmark theaters. And when I saw the trailer for midsummer, um, I honestly have to say, I wasn't interested in seeing the movie. Um, it, it kind of looked like a bunch of white people in a dire situation, which is, you know, really <laughs> boring. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so yeah, that, that was my first experience, um, to Midsummer and seeing the
0: poster just about everywhere. How about you? And so then this watching it for the podcast was the first time you seen it then, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, when yeah. I, when I watched it with you, hmm So for me, I remember I saw Hereditary in theaters, which is, like I said, Ari Aster's kind of first big, well, it was his first feature length film, but also a a huge breakout film. Um, It got a lot of press and a lot of people saying it's one of the most uh, scary movies ever made and all that stuff. And I will say the movie's plot makes no damn sense if you've (laughs) seen Hereditary, but it is nonetheless like a very chilling film that like after i left the theaters i was just like shaken by that film so Uh, i saw
1: i saw that movie not in the theaters i saw it uh when it made its uh, amazon prime debut i maybe i was just in a mood pace i don't know i didn't like it i thought that the pacing (laughs) no pun intended (laughs) i i didn't i i thought that the pacing was just not there the performances were not good tony collette who i love and everything managed to salvage that a little bit but i think i think after um watching midsummer and having a positive reaction to it this might be the impetus i need to maybe revisit hereditary but the first time i saw it wasn't a fan
0: i think part of it like like i said the plot doesn't make any damn sense but um for me seeing it in a theater really And I went by myself too, because my husband, as I've said a few times on this podcast, doesn't really enjoy horror movies. So I went to the Emory Bay Street theaters by myself, like a midday showing. And it was, (laughs) I just like that whole experience of seeing it in theaters was just like very, um, I I just kind of left the theater kind of like chilled about it and kind of like unable to stop thinking about it for a few days. And so when they were announced um, midsummer, And I started to see the advertisement for that and saw that it was directed by the same person as Hereditary. I knew I wanted to see it. The problem is it was released in June of 2019, which is when Matt and I were driving across the country from California Bay Area Mm. to Maryland. Mm. So um, it did have a long run in theaters, but just like kind of getting set up on the East Coast and trying to get employment and stuff and money figured out kind of took a long time so i didn't unfortunately never got to see this in theaters but when it was released on amazon i uh, purchased it uh before it's even on prime i because i knew i wanted to see the see the film so i so i do own the film um digitally but not the director's cut because i didn't buy it on itunes of course nice. but um <laughs> so i <laughs> watched it and i was obsessed with the movie i just think this is a very, very well done film. um mm. And so, uh, so I'm kind of interested because Joe did not have. Joe, I think you, it's safe to say, you can correct me if you're wrong, that you, the movie was very thought provoking to you when you saw it the first time, but you kind of were on the fence about how you felt about it because it was very strange. But upon second viewing, you said you seemed to like it more.
1: See, the th- yeah, I mean, for the most part, you're correct. The, the thing is, uh, in terms of thought provoking, I was surprised by how theological it was. I mean, I know we are doing this podcast to l- watch horror movies through a theological lens, and so far with the Halloween series, we've been able to do that really well, which actually surprised me. <laughs> uh, but uh, with uh, Midsummer, uh, there were there were so many theological things I was pulling pulling from it, uh, but. On the whole, though, after that first viewing, I was just I was just really uncomfortable. <laughs> and I don't know how to describe that discomfort. like, was I uncomfortable because it was such a good horror movie? And I think the answer to that question is yes. It definitely evokes horror.
0: <laughs> and yeah. so
1: And so if that's the point of the horror movie, then Midsummer uh, did that job. Second time around, um, obviously since I saw it the first time, I have a little bit of emotional distance and I was really able to appreciate it better. And I got over the hangups I had for that first, for that first film, that first viewing.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm, very, very interesting. So yeah, I'm definitely excited to talk um, more about this film, especially when we get to the rating it, because I don't think yeah. you and I have clued each other into where we kind of fall on that yet. So I'm yep. curious, but um Uh, The only other thing I'll say about my first memories of the film is that uh, so after I watched it the first time, I think I watched it with a friend uh, through like watch party or Netflix party, whatever it's called, that kind of setup um, Mm on the first time. But then I went back and I loved it so much. I like the next day I rewatched it like by myself and then like. I think a month later, I finally convinced Matt. I'm like, don't worry, this movie is not like scary in a typical like jumps, like the type of scary that Matt doesn't like. I mean, it's definitely right. creepy, but it's not like a traditional horror movie. And I, that's actually kind of a source of controversy in the horror community. Some people don't think this is a horror movie at all. I absolutely think it is. But yeah. um, so I convinced Matt to watch it. And he also had a very similar reaction to you, like a very unsettled reaction he i think overall it's safe to say that matt likes the movie but when joe and i were re-watching it for the podcast matt was kind of watching it with us at first and he got up he's like i can't watch this again so he got up like right. halfway through and left which is fair because it is like you said very unsettling
1: i and you know i empathize with matt uh because i i literally waited until the day of recording this podcast to do my second watch and to have that second watch by uh, doing the director's cut, and I sat on it for the same reasons. I didn't know if I wanted to put myself through that again. And I'm, I'm, you know, I can't, I'm, I can't speak for that, but for me, I, I don't regret that decision. Surprisingly, mm-hmm. I surprisingly enjoyed uh, this movie the second time around, watching the director's cut. And speaking of which, um, so I was googling just now. Uh, to confirm that this movie was released by A24, which it was. And I just want to say A24 is just everywhere uh, Mm -hmm. these days. And with some amazing, some amazing movies. And I feel like at this point they could release a mediocre movie that would still be better than what any of the other studios um, can release. So kudos to A24. Um, And... I also pulled up the A24 um, online website store, and I'm looking at the Midsummer Director's Cut Collector's Edition that you pointed out. It's $45. But for $45, they pack a lot of good shit into this. That's what I'm Um,
0: saying. Like, it's definitely worth it. It's just, it's a lot
1: of Exactly. I mean, the technical aspects are really good. So if you have a good Blu-ray player and a good TV, this is going to be a really great theatrical experience. I also see that there's a little book that's included and it Mm. has a foreword by Martin Scorsese. So, you know, this is definitely a nice treat to oneself. But um, the streaming edition of the director's cut which is exclusive to apple uh was 1999 which i think is a fair, fair price especially the way uh movie ticket prices have been going up these days um mm-hmm. uh the director's cut on apple uh comes with uh is it two or three little featurettes i think it might be three i could be wrong but i think that's fair because the featurettes that are bundled with the um apple version are are, are are really good they're not um i don't think they're junket pieces sometimes these special features tend to be um uh, it's not it's not the pretty book that comes with the 45 five dollar blu-ray version but you know if you don't want to invest in that and you still want to see the director's cut totally worth it to pay $19.99 through apple
0: yeah and i like that you brought up this this was put out by a24 which has kind of really made a name for itself in doing more Mm-hmm. art housey films i mean that's not all they do but especially once the witch or some people uh, jokingly are called right. the Vivitch. the Vivitch. <laughs> yeah but when that came out in 2015 they kind of really made like this breakthrough in horror films so now they're kind mm-hmm. of they do a little bit of everything like i said but they there's quite a bit of uh horror uh films that they've been putting out uh, I, 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 excellent art Kind of artsy art art house horror films. They've also done Moonlight, which is a mm-hmm. queer coming right. of rage film. So a lot of good stuff.
1: I was just gonna. I was just gonna, thank you for putting out Moonlight because I was gonna point out that I can't believe the same studio that released um, The Witch and uh, Midsummer uh, not only came out with Moonlight, but also The Farewell. Mm. So uh, it's a I don't know. They are they have a really diverse portfolio. <laughs>
0: yeah and like you said like almost not everything they put out is great but i mean a lot of stuff that they put out is pretty solid um and one could say
1: it, one could say pace that it's better than the average
0: bear no, yes too, the too average much. bear too, on fire stuff much. with the subpar boyfriend <laughs> 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 okay I got
1: i'm sorry audience i'm sorry pace
0: <laughs> you're you're all good i love it i'm here for this um so yeah, I guess we'll start our walk through. I kind of wrote stuff up, but I know you did too. So feel free to interject whenever,
1: Ooh, yeah, uh, sure. You have,
0: but um, so this movie, first of all, was very difficult to write this walkthrough because it's a, yeah. it's a fairly long film, but it not much happens. <laughs> but so so that's that's part of it. But uh, so basically, the film follows university student Danny, who's played by the amazing Florence Pugh, amazing. Uh, it opens with her in a panic over being unable to reach her sister after her sister sent a strangely worded email. Uh, Danny reaches out to her boyfriend Christian, who is hanging out with his friends. They all basically are telling him to dump her, and he basically says mm. to her that she's overreacting—the usual cis white straight horseshit.
1: I was just uh, gonna say that this is the usual. Those exact words, exactly. Those
0: exact right. words. Right. He's such a dick. And um anyway it turns out that her sister did in fact kill herself and her parents mm-hmm. uh danny is broken with grief and so christian does a half-assed job at trying to comfort her then we fast forward a little bit in time and we find out that christian and his friend group uh the same people basically told him to dump her uh josh and mark are planning mm-hmm. to join their friend Pella in housing glad at his family's commune uh the harga is the name of the Uh, community there uh Mm -hmm. because they're planning a midsummer celebration that happens once every 90 years Mm -hmm. uh christian hadn't told danny about it and so she finds out it causes a fight he ends up inviting her and so she basically agrees to go on the trip with them Mm -hmm. they all make it to sweden uh where they meet two other outsiders connie and simon uh they all kind of trip on some mushrooms for a little bit and Mm -hmm. danny sees grass growing through her hand which is kind of fun the which
1: and very symbolic
0: yeah right um and then the day after is danny's birthday so uh pella gives her a drawing christian forgets until pella reminds him and then he half-assed wishes her a happy birthday with some cake or whatever we (laughs) could we clearly do not stand christian in this house or on this podcast he is a jerk
1: Uh, yeah (laughs) He's he he is a jerk played by the unfortunately sexy looking Jack Rayner. But let's continue.
0: <laughs> yes, he is very he's a very attractive man. He is. and we do get some full frontal nudity in here too, which is nice. But, um, <laughs> but
1: but but he plays the character with such you know despicableness that I from the full frontal was like, okay, go die already. <laughs>
0: At yeah, this right.
1: Point. And we continue, please.
0: So, um, Pella explains. Uh, while they're there, basically, Pella explains the life cycle of the Harga. They spend the first 18 years in spring, basically growing up as kids. Then they have another 18 years of summer until they are 36, which essentially they get to go out into the world and have, uh, what, um, some communities call like a room Springa. Uh, and then from mm-hmm. 36 to 54 is where they work and labor. Then 54 right. to 72 is winter as they enter their old age. And then what happens when someone reaches 72? Well, we find out the next day in a ritual called the Adastupa, which is based on a real life ritual um, mm-hmm. in some Scandinavian countries, where two of the elders try to kill themselves by leaping from a cliff onto a rock below. One of them doesn't die and gets his head bashed in by a giant mallet. Then the group As of you out- do, <laughs> right? <laughs> then the group of outsiders is really disturbed by this, and they but they are convinced to stay, except for Connie and Simon who want to leave the next day. Uh, I guess this inspired Christian to want to write his thesis on the Harga, even though Josh had already said he was going to. So they have this fight over it. They basically compromise, and they're both going to write their thesis theses on the harga uh, mark pisses on their ancestral tree and then he mysteriously disappears mm. connie and simon mysteriously disappear with excuse that one went to the bus stop and the other followed josh sneaks into the sacred space basically their temple and takes pictures of their sacred book when he is knocked unconscious by somebody wearing mark's face like Leatherface <laughs> style
1: <laughs> oh my goodness uh-huh
0: uh, then the next day, only Danny, Christian, and Pelle remain from the original group. Only mm. Danny seems to be worried about it. Christian is still being an ass because Christian's doing as Christian does. Uh, Danny and Christian are both coerced into taking drugs, and Danny participates in a Maypole competition, which she eventually wins and becomes the May Queen. Christian is pulled into a sex ritual to impregnate a cult member in front of most of the women of the cult. Danny discovers that, has a panic attack, and many of the cult members participate in her panic and help comfort her in a communal way. Christian tries to run away, but is given a drug that paralyzes him. He's stuffed into a bear suit, a disemboweled like literal bear suit. Uh, one of the <laughs> elders tells us gathered that there needs to be nine sacrifices to ward off evil. Four victims are the outsiders already killed, Simon, Connie, Mark, and Josh. And four are willing participants from the cult. Danny, as May Queen, gets to choose the ninth victim. She chooses Christian, her dun, dun, dun. boyfriend. <laughs> right, uh, he's wheeled into the Thank temple. Still- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's wheeled into the temple, and because um, he's still paralyzed, along with the willing participants, and is set on fire, and he burns to death. Danny sobs in horror, and then slowly, gradually begins to smile. The credits roll.
1: The credits roll, and there's so much meaning in that smile. I got to tell you,
0: right? It's definitely like the. 21st century version of the mona lisa smile
1: <laughs> you think that's what the that's what mona lisa was smiling about in that painting that her her boyfriend who jilted her was going down in flames in a bear
0: suit i mean why not <laughs> it's as likely an explanation as any <laughs> uh
1: you know uh great uh great rundown as usual pace um and uh, i, I want to add some things too that i noticed let's let's yeah, go do. back Let's go back to the beginning of the movie really quickly. I was, I was looking up um, what kinds of awards this movie might have attracted, and um, obviously there was one nomination for Best Horror Movie, uh, and it did get recognized um, uh, for uh, Cinematography quite obviously the it's a very visually appealing movie, but I wanted to know if it had gotten recognized for, um, for sound design. And I, I wasn't seeing that. And so, uh, one thing I forgot to mention is that on the second viewing, so watching the director's cut, I watched it wearing headphones, uh, because I really wanted to absorb the dialogue. Um, but it turns out that the, like the, the ambient noises that happen in the scenes that happen in the world of Midsummer itself are, are really good. Like they're so vivid. It's just, and I was listening with a really average Bluetooth headset. This wasn't studio grade or anything, but I was able to pick up so many interesting audio cues that just add to the texture of the story. For example, Uh, I didn't notice the first time around that in the scenes of, um, uh, of, of of Danny's sister's house and her parents who all die as part of her sister's suicide. uh, You can actually hear the hissing of the CO2 that's um, coming from the car or not the CO2 Mm. but exhaust. So I, I was so caught off guard by that detail. Like, I literally just froze on my
0: sofa and I was like,
1: "Oh shit, you need. You can hear this the hissing."
0: <laughs> <clears throat> that scene by the way is so off-putting and to begin the film with that, like, "Oh my god, it's so dark." It's such a jolt. It's a and the thing is though, it is off-putting um and watching
1: it the first time, I I was watching it as a regular human being, so I was totally put off. I was and I was scared. You know, all the things that, that the director, Ari, uh, by the way, Ari, I still want you to call me. Um, all the things that the director might have <laughs> might have intended, right? Yeah. Uh, but watching it the second time, you know, I'm still a little disturbed because it's just filmed so effectively. But I'm appreciating the nuances more. Like I was looking at the way the bodies are posed and they're, it's definitely, there are definitely mirrors to what's going to happen later. I was going to say foreshadowing, but this is the interesting thing. In one of the special features that came with a director's cut on Apple, uh, Will Poulter said that this is not a movie. No, I don't think it was Will Poulter. I think it was one of the other cast members actually um, said that this is uh, not a movie about foreshadowing. It's a movie that lives in the moment. And I guess I could see that. Um what do you think, Pace? I
0: don't know. Like they there's been you can find all this um in like all sorts of listicles from like BuzzFeed to Cracked or any other one of those sites that has stuff like that, like trivia yeah. about these things. But like there's been so much written about how this movie really does a lot of parallelism, which is also a mm, biblical thing. It so, is, yeah. But um you'll get like Kind of the setup of the bodies in the beginning, like you're talking about, and then you kind mm. of see repeats of that. Or mm-hmm. people have noticed that um, the sister wearing the mask, kind of like taped to her face, is kind of appears in the trees later on in the movie. And then also some of the artwork that is like so visually stunning. Like, but they show this like huge tapestry in the beginning of the film, yeah, yeah. and. Uh, so basically all the scenes of the movie are on display in that tapestry. So you already, right in the first few beats of the film, you already know what's going to happen if you pause it and kind of look through that. So there's, so I'm not going to get into that too much, but just to, but just to agree with you, Joe, that there's a lot of that there that's happening. in this.
1: Well, I I was also especially stricken by the scene where uh, Chris and his friends are um, all hanging out at that, at that bar or some kind of restaurant, whatever, some, some dive joint for grad students, apparently (laughs) probably a little bit like, you know, that bar that used to exist down the street from our seminary. That's long gone. And I can't remember what the name of it was. Uh, uh, So Chris takes a phone call from Danny um, and then his friends get on his case for that. And so Chris steps away from his friends and when he takes Danny's phone call he's doing it in front of a wall that that is pretty insignificant at first glance because it looks like a typical bar where they've tried to add character by adding like vintage pictures Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: then on second viewing I realize it's iconic it's it's kind of iconographical and parallels the imagery that we're going to see later on. And so I think the parallel that's happening here is uh, what we see in the movie as these strange pagan and ancient customs, I think they intriguingly like tend to leak into modern life. Like modern life will never be able to Erase the old ways. The old ways always have a way of appearing. Do you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, and I want to make a really silly joke, which I feel like would undermine your amazing deep point. You just com- made com- completely, completely do but it. I'm do going it. to say, I'm going to say, because that that's a very compelling point, and I'm glad <laughs> you brought that up. But were those pictures of Abraham Lincoln covering the entire fucking wall?
1: Well, you know. <laughs> We are we are long removed from the Halloween universe at this point. <laughs> oh, but your but your your joke, amusing as it was, <laughs> it does remind me um, of a a, a a cool fact that both you and I uh, know, and I think you, you told me. But uh, Midsummer was uh, initially uh, pitched to Ari as just a conventional slasher movie, right? Yeah, and so all those elements are there you know, young students going on an international trip. Ooh, one by one, they all disappear. Ooh, you know, at the hands of these friendly but ultimately sinister people. Ooh, but this is the thing, though. Even though those tropes are there, it's so different coming from Ari Oster's vision, coming from A24. It's definitely... I wanna, I wanna, I wanna use your word "pace" and say that it's art house, but I don't want to make this movie sound like it's inaccessible and that it's snobby. You know, it's just a really well done scary
0: movie. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh P, I think what really grounds this film because, like, visually and kind of also the soundscape you talk about, there's a lot of like art house elements, and uh, I'm not even going to try to say the cinematographer, powell P- Pogor, yeah, apologies to you um for trying to but uh just gorgeous cinematography and stuff so so that kind of is a lot of those and a lot of this like parallelism stuff it's a lot of like brainy stunning visual stuff that you associate with art house but then at display in the center of this film is this like heart torn open of danny essentially and just seeing the true like we've we all know friends or maybe we ourselves who have been in those kind of relationships are just right. falling apart. And yet somebody like this kind of this codependent element to it, where you can't just yes. like end it, even though it should. And it's so, it's like, it's so we're seeing such this literal, real grounded approach to this awful toxic relationship at this heart of this film that makes the rest of the film just, just, not feel like inaccessible, like one might think of for an art house film. Like I think of um, another A twenty four film, The Lighthouse, which I think I haven't is seen there. that yet. I-, I liked it, but I think it's one of those. It's very art house and it's kind of inaccessible. So it's like right. compare if you compare these two, I definitely think Midsummer is definitely um, more uh, accessible to the typical audience. But this also kind of brings up the point I was bringing up earlier, which is. For the typical horror audience, though, I I can see why this movie kind of casts a lot of um, ripples in the horror community of saying mm. this is not horror because it it does something very different than the typical horror film.
1: But then, I mean, if if we're going to go along with well, with that argument, uh, I would still want to classify it as horror, but it would have to be some kind of subgenre, like you know how there's body horror. So, like, mm-hmm. what 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 kind of horror? What kind of subgenre would this well, be? Is it psychological horror? Or?
0: Wikipedia classifies it as folk horror.
1: <gasps> I so like that. Okay. That's
0: interesting. Mm-hmm. Which I like as well. Uh, it definitely seems. I, I don't know. I it it has those, all the slasher elements, like you say. Um. So so it definitely is. I don't know it's hard for me to think of it as anything other than horror cuz how would you how else would you define it like it's just right. very and kind of the mood of the film one of the things that just struck me upon the first watching watching this film is just how mo- the first part of the film is very dark um mm-hmm. vi- visually dark I'm, like it is all shot in dark blues and grays yep. and stuff like that then it kind of transitions into kind of like medium tones but then when they get to Sweden it's kind of like uh Dorothy landing in Oz is suddenly this <laughs> bright colors for the it's, rest of the whole fucking movie in it's like in this, the bright yeah, of yeah. day it's like and an it, assault by the sun <laughs> yeah and it's like it makes daylight fucking terrifying yes, and it creepy does. and uneasy and unsettling in a way that literally no film i've ever seen scene has been able to do in this way like it's just the entire film it's daylight you think that they're safe and yet you just feel so uneasy you, the entire film
1: i think you nailed it their pace i think this is the key uh metaphor or whatever we want to we want to call it the key lesson here uh, is that um everything that is unsettling everything that is bad for us it's not that just we can see it we know it. We just find reasons not to engage with it. Everything mm-hmm. is uh, everything to uh to borrow from scripture, uh, uh and and make it into my own. Everything is visible under the sun. We just make up reasons to go around it, and then and then when when the thing that we see is the thing that we crash into inevitably and eventually. We make up reasons for that, too. But wouldn't you agree? Like, yeah, it's all there. Uh, we just I mean, speaking from personal experience, you know, and and, and especially in the way I've, I've handled breakups, um, I when I when I see my part in what led to those breakups, you know, I look back and see not just the red flags and not just as a result of hindsight. But here's the thing, too, and I'm being extremely vulnerable here especially with my last relationship, I knew what was I knew what I was doing. I knew I knew what the consequences were likely to be, but I leaned hard on the likely and I kept thinking to myself, maybe I can change him or, you know, this and that and I threw away a year of my life and that didn't happen. And by the way, part of the motivation for watching it the second time Uh, Well, the list of reasons, Pace, included, number one, I was curious, genuinely, about the director's cut. Number two, I love doing work for this podcast. I don't care that we don't get paid. I would like to get paid, and Ari asked her if you want to marry me, and I can inherit some of that money. (laughs) I'm just going to spend the rest of the podcast like flirting with Ari Aster. Can I I do? No, just kidding. Um,
0: He definitely listens to our podcast, so he knows.
1: You must. You must. We are experts and perhaps divas in our field. But anyway, yeah, I love doing the work for this podcast. And number three. I I started thinking about that last relationship and how it's been about a year, maybe almost two years since that one-year relationship ended, and uh, the partner that this human being dumped me for, uh, I'm wondering if they have finally made it and if they got married. And, you know, I don't know one way or another because I blocked all of them, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, on social media. Uh, but just the thought of that alone was enough to stir up enough emotions that I plunged right into watching this movie again.
0: Well, it's strange you say that because like when I watched it for the first time, I um was kind of going through some weird relationship stuff too. Uh mm. Matt and I are um polyamorous. So we were dating somebody and it was and I kind of felt like some of the stuff uh going i felt kind of like i think like i said earlier so many of us can relate to danny or have friends who are like danny like i knew Mm -hmm. that there were things that weren't working and yet i cared about the person so much that i wanted to hold on to right and and, um so so very similar to you uh but uh but what's different between the person that matt and i were with and the person danny was with Mm -hmm. christian is the person i was with actually was willing to do some of the hard work and push through, and mm, so mm. we kind of we had a little bit of a falling out, but then things change, and so now this person is one of our closest friends. And it, but it's just oh. like it's one of those situations where it's just like it, it. You it can go any number of ways, but like what what's really interesting is just kind of kind of the tendency I think in many of us. I mean, so this is going to turn into um, therapy. Uh, Horror nerds at therapy podcasts that probably don't don't that don't episode. think
1: twice about it, Pace. Because as we all know, everyone does these podcasts to work out our issues in front of the public. Am I right? Yeah, All yeah, <laughs> right, call sure. me out. Call me out. <laughs> uh, no, yeah. Go ahead. But like,
0: yeah, I'm in a twelve step pro a uh, twelve step group uh, for um adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional mm-hmm. families, mm-hmm. and so one of the things that we talk about in this one of the um characteristics one of the things we read every meeting is the characteristics of an adult child uh, of alcoholics and dysfunctional families is this kind of inability to let go of a relationship any kind of relationship not just r- romantic but any sort of friendship or relationship we have in our life because of this fear that this fear that um it's kind of attachment issues but this fear that there will be nothing to replace this relationship that nothing oh. that we're going to basically be left alone and be abandoned right. and so it's like going to these extreme lengths to hold on to something which shouldn't be being held on to and so it's just kind of one, one of the things that we learn and one of the promises that we read every time in the 12-step meet in this particular 12-step meeting is kind of this promise of uh and with many 12-step programs, there's a little bit of theological and religious message in there. So kind of one of the things it talks about is like this promise of abundance, that we don't need to be f- so fearful that we're going to lose all these relationships that mm-hmm. are not healthy for us because there's some sort of higher power using that language Um that will kind of replenish us and has this deep love for us and whether it's the universe or god or whomever that there's kind of this higher power that is leading us towards abundance in our relationships so we don't need to be fearful and that's one of the hardest things theological hot takes (laughs) i know right but i think that's one of the most the hardest things for us any of us as humans is to uh especially those of us who are survivors of trauma or grew up in dysfunctional households or any number of things like Danny clearly um one has this really unhealthy relationship with their family we don't get a lot of it cuz their family dies in the beginning but like um we can tell just from that email, like Danny is trying to call for her family. And so, so you can see why she would have all these attachment issues and why she would be in this weird codependent relationship with Christian, especially after her family's death out of those kind of fears and dysfunction and worry of abandon and all those things.
1: Yeah. You, you've said so much and um, I, I was taking notes literally. Uh, uh, so you, uh, Uh, You mentioned uh, that the person that you were involved with, um, there was some trouble in in doing the work it took to get to the relationship. And I couldn't help but think of the spat that Josh and Chris got into at the bar when Josh said outright to him, You know, you don't want to do the work. You just want to play out this drama. And Mm. then Chris, Chris snaps at Josh. Okay. Thank you for psychoanalyzing me. And that, that, that relationship between Josh and Chris, uh, is, is interesting for me because it wasn't until the second viewing of the movie that I realized they don't seem to have liked each other from the beginning yet. They, they hang out with each other. And so i want to i want to clarify in case you didn't know i'm gay i'm saying that so sarcastically because like just like i radiate gay okay <laughs> oh i'm sorry i, I i'm not pride month. we're loudly. recording
0: this in pride month it's being released in pride <laughs> month we are very queer friendly we are both queer we're amen so.
1: And my friend, if
0: you haven't figured it out by episode sixteen that we're on, then <laughs> I, I'm sorry for you. I, I mean, you know, the clues were there in broad daylight. No pun intended. Uh, <laughs>
1: the, the The point that I wanted to uh, that I wanted to make was that um, I, I've lost my tr- oh yes, uh, as a gay person uh, who hangs around in not just the gay community but the queer community in general. Uh, I really don't understand cishet masculine dynamics all that much. And so my, <laughs> my 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 question is is this is this like tension between Josh and Chris just a normalized aspect of what they think friendship is. I'm just like wondering, like, if you two don't like each other so much, why do you all go out for pizza? Why do you all hang out in each other's apartments? Why are you all taking an international trip?
0: I know, right? And it definitely feels like we get with Christian kind of like you were saying, like he clearly does not have... um yeah. He seems to just be kind of like bumbling through life in the way that many, uh, a lot of the criticisms of uh, kind of white culture is this like white man mediocrity that you Mm -hmm. can get these very mediocre people in high paying positions that just somehow stumble through life and just opportunities keep landing on them. And it's like, how, whereas everybody who's marginalized and, um, whether that's women, queer people, people of color, like the amount of work we have to put in to continually prove our worth. And then you have people like Christian who are just able to like basically sleepwalk through grad school. And that's part that's right. interesting to me because Josh is a black man and Christian is a white man. So, I mean, there's right. definitely that tension there, too, where Absolutely. Josh is going above and beyond to do his thesis on the. Um, on this community. And Christian is instantly like, oh, I'm going to just kind of like copy your work and copy your ideas. And
1: Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, and yeah, you touched on that, uh, the mediocrity syndrome of the, of the cishet white man. Uh, And then there's also the element of maybe this is what they think friendship is like. I, I don't know. So dear listeners who are cishet, not only do we well, well, no, I mean, well, yes, but we also love you. Remember, love, love the sin, hate the sinner. Yes. <laughs> how do you like a taste of your own medicine? No, 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 I'm yeah. kidding. Uh, but, you know, chime in, let us know. I mean, is this the way, is this, how, how do I say this masculinely? Is this the way dudes be acting, bro? <laughs> God, so, right. I can't. Hey, that's ridiculous. Uh right.
0: Yeah, I have a lot of questions for you. If you are I, I, a cis pet man, please write in. I have a lot of questions.
1: <laughs> please do because you know it's 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 not what I expected from this movie. Yet it's what ha- it's what's happened. I've walked away from this movie literally thinking, are men like that? Because I have met guys like Chris. Believe me, and I'm just mm. I'm just I'm just like why are you like that? Why are you constantly gaslighting and not even being subtle about your gaslighting sometimes? Um, oh my
0: God. Yeah.
1: Ugh. We could, um, we could spend a whole podcast episode on that, but I did want to move on to the second point that I got from your analysis is um, you mentioned the codependency. That was a, a big theme here. And it reminds me of a scene um, during one of the uh, mealtime moments um at the cult uh where uh there's a baby sitting next to danny and the woman holding danny i mean the woman holding the baby explains to danny that the baby's mother is away on a pilgrimage And um, that was set up intentionally um, so that the baby can learn detachment. And while the mother is away, um, the whole community is responsible for caring for the baby. And I thought that was such an interesting contrast from the modern world that we were leaving behind in America.
0: It's like Hillary Clinton's book. It takes a village.
1: It does. It does. She should have been the president in 2016. But that's another podcast. Um, Yep. (laughs) But you know, it, it really it really does, it really does speak to the tension between individualism and uh, community. And those are big topics in theology, especially in Christian tradition. Those are, you know, are, are, are big ticket items. Um, but I want to clarify that midsummer doesn't give us any answers to that. It, it may demonstrate those extremes. But it does so in a way that's really meant to entertain. And I'm not minimizing the quality of the movie. I I, I just don't think it's adding any serious layers of discussion um, to to that tension. But it's a good but the movie is a good example, nonetheless, of the extreme of individuality, which is yeah. the beginning dark part of the movie and then extreme community where everyone is in agreement that it is okay for a 72 year old man and woman to end their lives by jumping off a cliff.
0: Yeah. And how it's kind of then explaining the film as something that it's a delight that they look forward to because they see Mm -hmm. life as kind of a circle and connected. And so, so I agree with you that it's, there's a lot of this tension that's being presented between the individualism and the communal of this without any sort of conclusions just kind of letting the tension itself drive kind of the narrative along and also build some of that uh unease that i think the film has but what's really interesting kind of like this is just you know josh and christian arguing over who gets to write a thesis and then the community's answer is you both get to but you have to share um share kind of your research and stuff like that and just kind of like why is academia in the west in the western hemisphere so much this especially in north america so and especially in the united states yeah it's this competitive cutthroat you know publish or perish kind of thing and it's not i'm not saying european models especially like i'm in a phd program of course so there's a lot of difference between european models for academia um and especially, like, higher education when it comes to, like, doing PhD work and American academia, which just, I feel like it American, like, just, it's just so deeply ingrained into this Americanism yep. of, like, this individualism that just, and it's yeah. like, it just doesn't fucking work. It doesn't, yeah. It's There's doesn't. limited resources. We're all fighting for it. Why don't we just share? Come Why on. don't we just
1: share it? And, and... Being more collaborative will produce so much more knowledge than we can think of rather than forcing everyone to be individually competitive. Um, you know, it's literally mm-hmm. it's literally that cliche of let's put all of our heads together. It's a cliche, but it's true. You know, that's yeah. what works. Let's all put our heads together. And it's interesting to see that con- th- that contrast is really visible between Pele and and chris and josh and chris and josh are so um are so deep into this com- competition of who gets to you know write uh the first uh uh thesis about this community this cult and pele is all like you know both of you can write it, as you pointed it out but it's interesting because he he doesn't fully get why there's a competition to write about it. Like he's just, he's mm-hmm. it's like, he's just catering, you know, to their, uh, uh to their weird customs, which is ironic, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what Josh yeah. and Chris are doing, um, at the cult. Um, but mostly the sense that you're getting from Pele is okay. I gave Chris permission Okay, I gave Josh permission. <laughs> what, what's the problem? Of course, sure. I would. I would. I would totally forgive the viewer for not noticing that nuance. I, you and I, as grad students, have um, a unique insight into that. Um, I think a more universal interpretation of Pele's relationship with Chris and uh, and Josh is that competition between Chris and Josh is moot. It's irrelevant. Pele knows that they're going to be
0: absorbed into, into that cult
1: and they're not yeah. going to make it back to the outside
0: world. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, there it seems to be... One of the things that the director's cut seems to, um, seems to suggest, mm-hmm. and this is only from me reading it and from me hearing you talk about it, is that there are several... There are nine sacrifices that needs to be made to appease mm-hmm. whatever the gods or to ward off evil. Obviously, that part is not fully explained, but um, we know that there are supposed to be nine sacrifices. And it seems like there are opportunities for the visitors to the community, the outsiders, to be absorbed into the community in a way that would not lead to their deaths. Like it does seem to me like there is kind of a choice there. And one of the things is like the, in the scene um, that we kind of talked about uh, you and I talked about before we started recording the podcast is the scene about the drowning where it seems like one of the characters might, who is of the village might drown um, as part of one of their rituals. And had she drowned then um she would have been
1: a he it's a male oh, child. sorry
0: yeah, had he drowned um then he probably would have been one of the village's sacrifices but since he did not and he survived that particular challenge then we find out later that connie was drowned in his place so it seems to me like there are ways to kind of i mean for like danny for one she survives to the very end and she in fact becomes a may queen and she's an outsider so so one of the interesting things that this film seems to suggest although it doesn't say is that josh and christian do not necessarily have to die they just are unwilling to leave behind this kind of individual competitiveness and that's kind of what leads to their death not just them not just the sheer fact of them being outsiders but um being unable to be absorbed into the community and into kind of a communal way of living
1: yes i am i'm doing that poetry snapping applause thing because you are one thousand percent on point and it's also leading me on a train of thought as to into uh danny's um you know internal world uh so the codependency thing is definitely its own feature of her character. I mean, she's clearly she clearly leans on Chris um, in a time of crisis when Chris is not the best resource, right? Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, in one scene um, at the beginning of the movie, before they they've gone to Sweden, she's on the phone with her friend who who is not, we don't, we don't see, um, but did a really good job. (laughs) The actress did a really good job in that conversation. Um, She's on the phone with her friend talking about, you know, am I doing this? Am I doing that? Am I pushing him away? All the questions are about her and what she is doing about this relationship. And it's like, girl, you need to be analyzing what that man is doing to you But she doesn't seem to be capable of that because of the codependency. Her friend Mm -hmm. is bringing her friend is bringing up those important points. And at one point, her friend even says, well, if Chris is X, then you got to leave. Like she says it flat out. Um, So, again, the codependency thing is definitely its own feature of Danny's character and her journey In the movie but also in the context of her multiple losses you know her sister committing suicide and taking her parents with them with her um danny's life is gone and chris is the one thing that she's holding on to um because i you you said it a few moments ago pace she's afraid of what comes next which is she doesn't know what comes next so the natural instinct will be to hold on to Chris even though he's he's terrible. And like I said, his his terribleness is as obvious as broad daylight, you know, to make mm-hmm. use of the metaphor here. Um and so by the end of the movie, by the end of the movie, we're not just getting a um a reward of a of a comeuppance <laughs> for For Danny, as we see Chris being burned in the hut, being forced to wear a bear suit. (laughs) Um, I think I think this is really Danny finally realizing that entire part of her life is over. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the question remains, is she is she simply just uh, uh, starting a new life with the same shit? different daylight (laughs) you know what i mean i mean those people have their issues too
0: (laughs) oh for sure i mean the film like the film definitely problematizes like like you said it doesn't it doesn't point to any conclusions it just kind of holds attention that there are multiple ways of doing life individualism leads to but individualism in this film kind of leads to death or destruction um communalism doesn't necessarily lead to that but there is own issues as we can see and so um so 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 that's very interesting and i mean of course you could read all sorts of metaphors into that like climate change is one that you could easily read into that like being so hyper individualistic is what is destroying the planet and so we can come together globally to create solutions and to change the world and all that stuff and to save us but if we don't we're going to end up burning to death in a in that yellow temple too just from the planet <laughs> so so i mean there's all sorts no. of metaphors that can be read into that that um are compelling but but like as core like you said that one one is kind of presented as perhaps a better alternative but that does not mean that it's not without us own issues and the question of course like you said at the end of the film now what for danny she just basically killed her boyfriend um in this yeah. very cathartic ending it, it kind of implies that maybe she found community here but it doesn't say mm-hmm. that for sure so is she going to go back to the states is she going to join the call uh who knows um it leaves it open and if she does like i'm not sure it's going to be a happy ending for her either
1: right right and You know, the the movie doesn't the movie doesn't give us a lot of insight into who Danny really is. Um, I mean, evidently she was close to her family, um, had a good relationship with them. Um, We can imply that uh, she was doing fairly well in school. She had her own apartment. Um, But it's hard to say if danny would be willing to do the work that it takes to be in a community because living in community means you've got to give up some stuff in order to you know be with the others because you're you're going to be sharing you know your life with them and there are things that you have to give up from an individual life um yeah so-
0: like giving up having um intimacy one-on-one with another person and instead having some sort of group orgy where did, did the you, old lady comes behind you and know, pushes, no, pushes no, his ass to help no, impregnate
1: I, not even not even the old lady pushing his ass do you remember do you remember when when you know uh chris is kissing maya and then like you know he gets up Uh, just to take a breath or whatever. And then that woman is just singing like in in his face. (laughs) And I couldn't tell if Chris's face, what Chris's facial expression was saying, oh my God, is there a woman singing in my face while I'm having sex? Or if it was a result of how they drugged him or maybe both. (laughs) But I was just cracking up, like just imagining what it must be like to have sex, to be in that position literally and then look up and see this random naked woman singing at you singing cheerfully i might
0: (laughs) yeah i mean like the cult is definitely not presented as the good people the good guys here either so please don't mistake that what i think there are Mm. some commentaries that ariaster is making um about like the uh individualism versus communalism that are kind of that you can get takeaways from, but that does not necessarily mean that the cult is the good guys here because
1: of course they yeah.
0: literally murdered nine people. well, 11. If you count the two um, people who killed themselves by jumping off the cliff. So, I mean, th- this is a, a kind of gory movie and it's all the cult um, kind of doing it, uh, killing people, bringing in four outsiders with the intention of killing them. It seems so like, it's just, they're not the good guys either. Right. and like like it seems like there's no room for like everyone dresses the same everyone kind of speaks the same and so there's no room there's like no room to break from some sort of like whatever this cis hetero sort of thing is yeah. because like there's no queerness here everybody is straight and acts in a very right. like standard straight way so uh, this is not good either i'm not saying this is good this is the cult is very bad right
1: well and and i was also wondering the same that same thing about the the cult i i asked myself i don't think there are any same-sex couples in this cult and if there are either they have to be very secretive about it or they've been shoved off a cliff i don't know because because Mm -hmm. queerness you know homosexuality and and all those queer identities mm-hmm. like it seems like that is not standard in their community uh which yeah. you know which makes me sad because you know if you're born gay yeah. or if you're born knowing that um you don't agree with the gender that you're assigned there seems to be little recourse for that in that cult
0: yeah i mean it definitely seems like like any sort of sexual intercourse the The way the film kind of and not just to like bring queer identity to sex because that that's its own issue, and I'm not saying that yeah. at all, but I mean there it seems like any sort of sexual intimacy happens at the bidding of the cult because yeah. when they have sex, it is for the purpose of procreation yes. to bring in to have sex with an outsider to create a child, and then the community raises the child, so it's not even that person, the parent anymore raising them and then when they we talk about the one um I don't know what the term is like the muse or who, the guru of the group or something. Whoever writes the book is the result of intentional oh, inbreeding. The so it seems like yeah, the oracle. That's that's the word for, I was trying to think of. Um, is that also like that was also very much a planned? Right. They said intentional inbreeding for a specific purpose. See? So it sounds, seems like the only sex that happens in this cult is at the cult's bidding in very particular times and places. Right. And so. Yeah.
1: Well, and I'm glad that you brought yeah. up the Oracle
0: because I was thinking
1: about that too when when the priest, was it Father Ulf? They all look like Father Ulf to me. But anyway, what do <laughs> I know? I'm a brown Filipino queer. Um <laughs> uh I'll just say Father Ulf. When he was explaining the Oracle's existence, who I believe the Oracle's name is Reuben, uh, he was explaining Reuben's existence, uh, like you said, as um the product of intentional Um, incestual breeding, um, because the oracle has a a spiritual, you know, knowledge that is very unique. Um, And that is uh, to say it in a clinical way that serves a function for their community. Um, And it's, it suits their worldview. It's, it suits their spirituality. Right. But I'm also wondering Mm -hmm. like by bringing, you know, two cousins together to give life to you know what you ex- what you are expecting is going to be your oracle like there's a spiritual tension there there's an existential you're giving life intentionally to someone who will you want to be intentionally deformed because you believe that they have a sixth sense that will support yeah.
0: your belief system and like it is yeah very, very disgusting. Look at the role of disability in the society, or the role of any sort yes. of um, difference in appearance, or anything like that. A difference in cognitive abilities yes. is all it, to to kind of put it on a pedestal as a religious thing. You might think, oh, that's good because they they kind of are supporting this, in the but it's like in one very particular. Purpose and function. No agency is given to this person for their own life. Yes. They are, amen, created with the entire purpose of fulfilling this role in this right. community, and not seen as an individual person with their own wants, needs, and desires, uh, which is just very problematic. And then, of course, we see that the rest of the community is all able-bodied. Right. So, does that mean that when a child is born, um, who is not? able-bodied or something is that child killed or something like do they are they trying to curate a very specific type of person in this cult and if you don't meet those specifications what happens to you it doesn't say and that's very problematic as well
1: absolutely and the only time that we see someone um who is who is uh, not able-bodied is when a wheelchair is brought out (laughs) for the incapacitated Chris, who they will ultimately sacrifice. And that itself is speaking a very loud commentary about what this community thinks about that issue. I, I, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I'm thinking about, um, I can't remember specific episodes, but I'm thinking about Star Trek in general and how, how nuanced Star Trek can be. I wish I could remember the episode I'm thinking about because there's an episode where the crew of the Enterprise um, meets some planet of like humanoids or humans. I can't remember. And when they come to meet the the members of the crew who beam down into their little town, they're very diverse. Um, and uh, what I mean is that there there are uh, of varying ages. And varying abilities, like one of the people who comes to meet the captain is some guy who's walking with a cane. And so this community of people is very different from what we get um, in, in Midsummer. Everyone, it's very, it's very much homogenous. And difference mm-hmm. is treated as something to be ritualized, as something to return to the earth rather than giving that person agency or a chance to flourish that oh pace that is what i think is lacking from that spiritual belief system as a catholic uh they may they may they may look like they're living an idyllic life but i don't think there's any actual flourishing happening with those people
0: mhm and like yeah it just raises all sorts of questions too um for instance like they have this entire a temple full of these sacred writings uh, written by the oracle, but it's like you don't really see them read or... And it, so it's like they believe that there's some sort of living scripture that is ongoing, mm. and yet how is that shaping the community? How is that building the community, especially if they have these rituals that date back thousands of years that seem to go unchanged. So it just seems like it's a very stagnant community too, and so it just... So, so there's like you're saying, there's just all sorts of uh, issues within this community as well.
1: This is a this is reminding me of the uh, the deleted scene from the director's uh, that was in the director's cut. Um, uh, the reason why I'm thinking about it now is of something that you said a few moments earlier. Pace, we were talking about breeding and you know how they keep keep their bloodlines clean. And I was thinking to myself, you know, what if, what if their process, you know, what if it doesn't work? What if there's some insurmountable problem, uh, such as they, they, don't, they are not able to bring in outsiders in the way they are now? Right. So the way they're able to bring in outsiders is they send people out on pilgrimage, quote unquote, to learn a trade that will be useful to their community and also to bring in outsiders who, you know, they hope will will add to the gene pool. But like what like what is their plan B? Right. It doesn't seem like they have a plan B. Their faith is very much in this system, which is religiously valid. I mean, you know, their faith is strong, but to their detriment, right? And like, what is your plan B if 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 that doesn't work? And I was imagining a sort of plan B of desperation for them where they have to kidnap babies in the night and smuggle them back to their communities um, as their plan B. And that made me think in turn of the deleted scene that appears in the director's cut. It, um, so there's there's in in the theatrical release uh, there's a moment where Danny comes up to Josh to ask him for a sleeping pill uh, because she knows she's not going to be able to sleep that night and we just automatically think that her asking that question is connected to watching the ritual suicide of the two elderly people, but she has actually come back from another ceremony that took place um, at a lake um, and uh it's the ceremony where they almost drown a child as an offering to their God. Um, and in the end, um, Danny stops them. Uh, she just cries, "No, you can't do that. And then the child goes running back to someone who is a parental figure or I, I don't know, um, you know, a, a primary caretaker or something like that. And uh, as you said earlier, Pace, um, that's a setup. Uh, for fulfilling the roles in the nine sacrifices yes it's nice that that child you know was able to be stopped from being thrown into the lake by uh Danny's horrified reaction um but then this means we also find out that Connie <laughs> is the one that they really threw into the lake um so after after um after Danny stops that um she just kind of uh, leaves the group, leaves the lake in a huff. Chris follows her, and they get into this argument. Um, Danny is threatening to leave. She's like, "She's seen enough. This shit is bananas." B a n a n a s. Yeah. And and um, one of the things that uh, Danny says during that argument was, "Do you do you not question how these people like are able to do this in secret? Like if people." found out about this in the real world like it would be all over for them and um and so you know i i I, like i'm wondering you know like how did they keep this up if this if this happens every 90 years like how do they evade any media any law enforcement it's it's just so strange it just it seems like if we're to take this as a literal spiritual movie, a literally spiritual movie, it seems like their faith is working out for them so far. Mm-hmm. Either that or they're good at hiding the bodies. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, it looks like we've uh, strayed into theological talk without actually I know. meaning. I feel like, yeah,
0: I feel like for a movie like this, it's kind of hard it's not hard to not because to. the whole movie has so much deep theology. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess kind of speaking of that, is there anything else you want to talk about the movie itself or should we kind of go more intentionally into theology? Well, um,
1: one, one fun fact I want to bring up about the movie itself is that it turns out that Jack Rayner, Will Poulter, and Tony Collette have all been in a movie together, a 2014 Irish drama called Glassland. So I thought that oh, interesting. Thought it was interesting, yeah, that all these three actors who uh, – you know worked with Ari Aster have actually been in a film together before
0: very interesting yeah um I kind of want to see that oh, do you know what kind of genre it is
1: uh let's see Wikipedia says that it's a drama and it mm. and it sounds like a drama um the plot, <laughs> the plot summary says Jack Rayner stars as a young man who tries to help his mother played by Tony Collette with her alcoholism So, a very, very, um, very not related to cults, a very human, (laughs) everyday movie.
0: (laughs) Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check that one out, I think.
1: What about you? Anything that you wanted to say uh, about the movie itself? or How about that score, Pace?
0: Woo! Man. It's a lot. Like, it's... Oh, my God. It's kind of like... Salt on the senses, visual and oral senses throughout the yeah. entire movie.
1: I was going to say, it's it's beautiful in a really terrifying way. It makes me think of the classical definition of awesome, which was to describe God in a scary way. <laughs> Like mm-hmm. being in awe of God in its original definition meant that you were so overwhelmed by God's greatness that you would literally die or it was believed that you would die. And so there's yeah. definitely for me an awesomeness to the score of this movie.
0: I would agree with that for sure. And I, I got into the cinematography, like, like I was oh, kind of yeah. saying, this movie is just, there's this one scene that is just so visually, well, actually it's kind of this whole um, segment of the kind of the transition of the film where, uh it's transitioning from the early part that's kind of like dark uh visually dark to the lightness of uh, yeah. um, brightness of sweden so um but they're on like danny kind of opens the uh, closes the door and then suddenly she's closing a door in, in an apartment and then it's closing the door the door closes and she's in the an airplane and then oh, i like that too right and there's like in that whole scene and then there's that part when they're driving en route to the village and you just kind of have the cameras like upside down and then kind of slowly yes. like it's just that whole kind of sequence is just very visually breathtaking um and yeah. well put together and kind of i think shows the transitions in time in a way that works but hasn't that i have not really seen transitions done that way before so kudos
1: as a a movie about grief i think that visual imagery that visual commentary makes sense um especially i I found myself uh empathizing of all things with danny being in the apartment bathroom one moment in the airplane moment the next because Mm -hmm in 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 the in the couple of milliseconds it took for that transition to happen i was thinking that's exactly what grief feels like like you're jumping from one moment to another you don't remember what happens in between because yeah. it's all such a blur
0: yeah a, a lot of um oh, what's the word i'm looking for uh i don't know but yeah i in other words i agree with you that that definitely now that you say that that i agree with you 100 because because that's for me kind of like when i've been through depressive episodes it's a lot of going from one thing to another and not really recognizing or being fully conscious or aware of what's going on around you um and just kind of looking back at like a whole month and being like what happened during this month (laughs) like i haven't been productive i haven't done anything like it's just yeah
1: well then it it doesn't it become interesting then that they end up in this you know this cult this community in Northern Sweden where it's really difficult to tell time conventionally because of how close we are to the sun. And so you get the midnight sun and you don't get conventional nighttime. Yeah. In fact, I think, I think that, that scene, that deleted scene by the lake, I feel like that was the only time I saw night while they were in Sweden.
0: Yeah. They, that's, um, there are a few times when, Like it shows them sleeping, and you can see that's kind of like twilight outside. So it's like it's not dark, but you can kind of. It's like everything's kind of like in a muted blue, as opposed to the brightness of the rest of it.
1: And 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 the deleted scene by the lakeside, it took place more in conventional nighttime, and it was shot beautifully. Like even though it was nighttime, it looked absolutely pretty. Um, The other point that I was going to make about that deleted scene is I can see why uh, uh, Ari Aster decided to cut it. Now, the decision to trim the, X, the, 24, the excess 24 minutes was by the studio. They thought that it was already long enough. And so, you know, it's not a movie that would be marketable. Um, I can see why he decided to delete that particular scene, though, because the conversation between danny and chris especially where danny brings up the fact that you know the authorities if they ever get a hold of this cult it's over i think that brings up a level of logic that would distract from the movie and i think what ari aster's strength is is in revealing just enough but not too much you know what i mean and so i think that that scene it, it, if you had to cut that scene, cut out a scene, that would have been it because yeah. it, the, you know what what Danny is saying, it just kind of throws off the balance of the, I guess the mystique of the movie.
0: but there's also a good point that we that to uh, bring back to some an ongoing discussion we've as we are watching newer horror films in the genre of how do you isolate characters because we yes. talked about in 2018 and stuff and so this one of course they're so far north that there's no cell phone service so right. like Danny looks at her phone there's no bars right. uh there's no way to leave the cult because there's only like one or two motor vehicles in the area so like like when connie and um simon i think was his name tried to leave and someone's like oh we drove them into town but it's like because there's only one person who has a car it's like they can't leave even if they want to um right so so that's a very so i think um just the setting of this is a very remote and isolating setting, which really I think helps. And and that's, that's something too. Like we see Danny on the phone so much in the opening scenes with she's yes. on the phone with Christian. She's on the phone with her friend. She's on the phone trying to reach her sister. And then it's like, suddenly it's like, the rest of the movie, there's no technology or cellular devices or anything. Although they do make a yeah. remark about some of the kids watching uh, a movie. I can't remember what movie. It watching. was Austin
1: Powers. Oh, Austin
0: Powers. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess they have a DVD player or something there, a VHS player, but <laughs> not much technology. And
1: and, and so yeah, I, I I like that you brought up that contrast because that's the point of this community is that you will never need a phone because you're always going to be all up in each other's grill (laughs) okay like and that's that's the whole point that's the whole function that's the whole feature of the community
0: Mm -hmm. well we are over an hour and a half in our recording so i think we should get to a deep like i said i think we already covered a lot of the theological ground being as we've been going through it because um it's a very theologically dense and philosophical movie um, and that's kind of the nature of many art house films. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to know if there's any kind of deep thing we haven't touched on, theological thing that you want to talk about. I think I want to talk about uh, biblical parallelism since I brought that up. But I feel like I should explain it a little bit more. But what what do you have before I get into that?
1: Um, I think I've made a lot of my theological pulls, And I, I, I want to hear your biblical parallelism.
0: Okay, well, as we kind of talked about in the film, this film has a lot of parallelism where basically what I mean by that is it will show you one one thing and then it will kind of repeat it visually or thematically or within the story itself at a later point. And um, like one particular instance is we see the way that um, Danny's parents are killed and her sister is killed in the beginning from the carbon uh monoxide poisoning whatever it was mm-hmm. and then later on after the people jumped off the cliff and die there's kind of a flash of we see instead of the people who died there around the rock that they landed on, we see Danny's family laid out in a very like symmetrical pose, with her sister in the middle with the gas mask on, and her parents on yeah. the other side. And so that's kind of, that that would be kind of an example of a parallelism of bringing up something from the beginning and then kind of retouching on, retouching it. Um, and we also see that in the artwork a lot too, like how the artwork. There's many scenes in this. Like there's one scene when they first get to the um to the village or community wherever it is where it shows a tapestry and basically the tapestry goes through showing uh how a woman creates a love potion and it shows Mm -hmm. her like clipping her pubic hairs and all this and putting menstrual Mm -hmm. blood i think too and to Mm -hmm. some sort of potion and then later on we see that actually happen and so a lot of people a lot of films do this like for foreshadowing but this doesn't feel like foreshadowing like you said it's kind of like trying to live in the moment so instead it's kind of has creates these setups where you have these uh things that are either visually similar or thematically similar or within a narrative similar or a lot of the same conversation that danny and christian have over and over and over again trying to salvage this relationship right. just keep reoccurring um and that happens in the bible a lot too uh, i think um and, and it happens in the Bible in, two ways. Uh, first of all, it happens in the poetry of the Bible, like the Psalms and stuff a lot, as kind of like yeah. a poetic device. But I'm thinking like narratively in the Bible, there's parallelisms that are set up. Uh, um, like in the Gospel of Luke in the beginning, we have first the story of Elizabeth finding out she's pregnant with John the Baptist. And then we find out Mary is going to be right. pregnant with Jesus. And yeah. then we go back to Elizabeth and um, John the Baptist is born and then we go back to Mary and Jesus is born and so it's kind of like creating this parallelism in a way to contrast the two stories so we see um, how God is acting in one way about John the Baptist uh, and then we in his birth and then we see how God is acting in a different way with Jesus as a way to kind of show that Jesus is going to be The savior of humanity in a way that John the Baptist is not, and yet there's still this connection between the two of them because both are part of God's plan. And so that's one way to do it is to kind of contrast and show differences. And then there's another way, and I'm having difficulty um, thinking off the top of my head of an example of this, but this happens in the Hebrew Bible a lot, actually, where there'll be two kind of bookends. To a part of the Bible that kind of have similar narrative or literary things um, to are set up in a very similar way, and the point of that is to basically show you what's in the middle of those two things. So that's the important piece. Is there's a bookend on a bookend where God does one thing here, and then God does the exact same thing here, or there might be like two healing miracles that are almost exactly the same. But the point of those is that there's something that happens in the middle of that that is kind of being accentuated by these two similar stories, parallel stories on the other side. So I wonder if that's kind of part of what's happening here is like by creating a lot of these similar parallel narratives or visual elements and stuff, if it's a way of contrasting different pieces of it, is it a way of kind of accentuating some of what's happening in the middle meat of the film? I'm not quite sure, but I do know that it, what whatever's happening there, it is it is still very much visually stunning and um, just a lot of a lot of thought has gone into this movie <laughs> that um, we don't get in this level of thought in most films in the horror genre. There there are a few, but like just the amount of thinking that went into creating these sort of parallelisms and stuff. It's it's a literary feature that. Um, isn't just unique to the bible of course but it's something that often happens in the bible to make theological points uh,
1: right so. i i love i love that you brought uh, brought this up uh as a as a theological um string that you're pulling because there's some overlap too with um i think with just literary structure uh in general and um uh what you're talking about here about parallelism, um, it's also reminding me of another literary tactic that that is used by scripture and that's the calling back. And so I don't know if the calling back and parallelism are exactly the same thing. But while you were explaining um, the technique of parallelism, I was reminded of a conversation I was having on social media with the brilliant queer theologian J. Emery Johnson. Mm. And we were talking about, <laughs> as theologians do in their spare time when they get on social media. We were talking about the origins of Lucifer. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we were discussing how the modern rendering of Lucifer is not entirely scripturally accurate, how there's a mistranslation involved. And one interesting thing that uh, Dr. Johnson brought up was that... um, when 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 lucifer is directly referenced um the author is actually trying to make a call back to the genesis story um to the creation story in genesis and link the concept of lucifer to the serpent i'm afraid i can't get into more detail or articulate this any better than what i've already said but just as a technique um it's interesting it, it's interesting in how that fits in with what you're talking about parallelism and the way the story of midsummer is told because when during during the interview in in the bonus feature that comes with the Apple TV version when one of the actors said, this is not a movie that foreshadows, this is a movie that lives in the moment, I was really thinking about what that means and not in a bad way. I was just really curious by that statement. And I think I understand it better now that we're looking uh, by looking at that through a theological lens. Uh, Because what happens to scripture really is um, if you put yourself in the shoes of of the of the folks in Scripture, it really is moment to moment, and it's only when you when you distance yourself that you start to see the parallels, that you start to see the uh, the callbacks that are there. You know the biggest the biggest parallel, or maybe it's a callback, I don't know. Um, and it's much it's hotly debated in theology, is whether the Hebrew Testament prophesied the coming of christ or if it's a parallel or if there's a callback happening Mm -hmm. um and i think that fits in really well with the way the story is being told in midsummer you know like Mm -hmm. was it all meant to be Uh, or you know what if these are just parallel things and by by saying that these are parallel events i don't think is diminishing the meaning of them Mm -hmm. at all um for me, and I don't know if you feel the same way, Pace, uh, to tell a story where these parallels are evident is, for me, as a theologian, as a person of faith, as an active Catholic, it's really uh, demonstrative of a divine presence of God.
0: Yeah, yeah. I I, I would agree with that, too. Um, And uh, Jay Johnson, by the way, uh, friend of mine as well (laughs) formerly my advisor from my program my phd program but he interesting factoid about jay johnson is a buffy the vampire slayer fan so i wonder would he be willing to guest on our podcast some some day down the road maybe we can do an episode on uh buffy or something that would be fun
1: but that would be fun. Especially pay since you don't like Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Ooh,
0: ooh, mm. ooh,
1: you knew I was gonna go there? You knew I was gonna go there? Ooh. ooh
0: yep, yep. Ooh, I'll suffer ooh, through ooh, it for not I'm ooh, kidding. Ooh, I, there, there are things I like about it, but
1: um ooh. Well, there are definitely some theological polls we can make from that show for sure. For sure.
0: Like when she dies for the yeah. like in a very messianic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then comes back to life. But, even even, anyway. even
1: her parting words before she died were messianic. She yeah. she literally says to her sister, live for me. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, you've been reading Jesus' story a little bit, haven't you? So, um Yeah, no, it would be really great to have Dr. Johnson on here. He's absolutely brilliant.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So so hopefully you're listening to this podcast, uh, Dr. Johnson. But but uh, yeah, def- <laughs> but reach out to us. or we will reach out to you more likely um, and get you on mm-hmm. here. This would be fun. So anyway, uh, I, that's it for my theological stuff. Unless you want to say anything else, but if not, we can get into writing this film and you can tell me,
1: mm-hmm. I'm very
0: curious how you would write it.
1: So yes, I'm, I'm ready to get into the rating. Uh, so, uh, technical question base, uh, how do you want me to rate the movie? Do you want me to combine my first and second viewing? Do you want uh, separate responses to each viewing? What do you think?
0: I think I'm curious in where you're standing now. And where you, can I'm standing maybe, now. you can say, you can perhaps reference saying the first time I would have rated it this, but now I'm rating it now. That's what, but I'm really curious where you are, where you're feeling now
1: yeah
0: um what's our scale by the way since oh, we're not that's in the halloween question, we're
1: since not we're in the halloween universe
0: anymore right yeah since we're still season one we could do jack-o'-lanterns but that yeah. seems a little boring maybe we can do so. um people stuffed in bear suits out of 10 <laughs>
1: that that Where's that, that too is morbid that 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 no it not it's not morbid it's just it's not as interesting as a jack-o'-lantern
0: <laughs> okay we'll stick with jack-o'-lanterns for season one though.
1: yeah yeah Um, It'll be our homage to our humble beginnings as a Halloween podcast, right?
0: (laughs) Yeah. season 2 We're doing a different franchise, which we've already talked about, but we're not going to reveal yet. Maybe we'll have something different for that one. But for this one, we'll do jack-o'-lanterns.
1: Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Let's let the jack-o'-lanterns live for a couple more episodes. Uh, So where I am now is... I don't know, am I, is this a critical rating or is it a mood rating? Or Maybe it's a little bit of both. Write. It might be a little bit of both. Nine jack-o'-lanterns out of ten. Mm-hmm. I am not fully confident enough to give it the full ten. And I think that might be because it's horrifying <laughs> in a way that's not entirely entertaining. Yeah. Um, yeah, nine jack-o'-lanterns out of ten. The first viewing, after I saw it with you... I definitely might have rated it a six.
0: Oh, wow. Maybe even
1: a five. Somewhere in the middle. Um, but with a better understanding um, and seeing the complete director's vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, final score, nine jack-o'-lanterns out of ten. What about you, Pace?
0: I would. I was also thinking nine out of ten. I really, really like this movie. Um, I'm tempted to bump it up to a ten out of ten. But mm. like it's just... There, there are a few kind of inconsistencies and questions i have wondering about it like mm, so i'm not quite sure it's, i'm ready to give it a nine out of ten kind of like you were saying but it's about as close to a perfect horror film as i think as one can get uh especially with the mood like we're talking about is just so unsettling throughout yeah. um so i would say that do you have favorite kill
1: i was gonna ask you if we're gonna do a favorite kill because like it seems like a a, a thing that's more appropriate to the halloween movies but i was also thinking you know people did die in this movie and also i was also thinking about how you know ari oster was originally presented with this idea as a straightforward conventional slasher movie Mm -hmm. um that being said i would love to answer the the question of favorite kill and uh, much like with many of the halloween movies um uh there are some good kills to pick from i don't know yeah. if that's morbid or anything but we've been doing this podcast long enough that it's completely yeah. normalized to be no,
0: no need to apologize it's meant- <laughs> Horror is meant to be cathartic and entertaining, so no need to apologize for enjoying a kill on screen. We're not actually going out and killing real people. Or right. Or are we? <laughs> or I mean, are we? No, what kidding.
1: what what folks what pace does after the podcast is none of my business. So no, I'm just kidding. Um so I think I think the obvious question the obvious answer to this question would be seeing Chris burnt up (laughs) in a bear suit. But I would say that my favorite kill, because I thought in a way it was kind of clever, (laughs) was the way Josh was killed off. Um, So first of all, he's not the first person who dies, even though he's black. Hallelujah. (laughs) Um, So he dies as a result of his dedication to his project. And he is so devoted to his project that he transgresses ethics and decides to take pictures of their sacred scripture, even though Father Ulf said no. Um, And Josh dies when um, the Oracle, uh, you know, slams him with a, with a mallet. Uh, But Josh doesn't recognize that it's the Oracle because the Oracle is wearing Dead Mark's face. I know, right? Um, and then, and then, um, to top it all off, <laughs> we later we later find out that Josh is buried, or maybe it was just his leg, but his leg is sticking out of one of the gardens. And Pace, I wanted to ask you this question: Was that garden? the one that Pele was tending to when Josh and Chris came up to him asking if Pele had any updates on whether or not the elders said um, they could write about the community. And then Pele, like either Chris or or Josh asked Pele, hey, what are you up to? And Pele is just like poking at the garden. And he says in a kind of uh, passive aggressive, irritated voice, oh, tending to a garden yep. <laughs> and i'm wondering if that's where <laughs> that's i don't know. Where Josh, that's a
0: very good question yeah right
1: is that where josh's leg ultimately ended up so i that's my kill because it's i thought it was kind of clever
0: <laughs> yeah something we didn't get into uh in this film but there there's a lot of like religious stuff that's hinted at but never fully explained which i like but mm-hmm. the fact that there's a leg sticking out of the garden kind of as a way to ward off the evil and hope for good crops. And then there's with the person being drowned as a way to ward off the evil in the water and perhaps mm-hmm. hope for uh fresh water or for um rain or something. So it seems like there's some sort of intentionality to the way these people yeah. are killed. It's not just happenstance, uh, but well, yeah, I, oh, please. I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I do want to squeeze
1: in that that is what differentiates Uh, Midsummer as a final product versus how it was originally pitched to Ari Aster because he takes these horror slasher tropes and makes them into this commentary about community, about spirituality, belief, grief, codependency. And he sort of like uh, adds this arthouse sheen to it that is not you know, it's not, it's, it's not a snobby movie. Like, I, I think it's an approachable movie. You know, if, if you just take the time to just watch it and, um, and you know, give it a shot, uh, a chance to say what it's, what it's saying. Like, I have never seen these tropes of, of, of horror done in such a unique way. Because if you take out, you know, all of the, the cult stuff, it really is just a bunch of young people getting off one by one. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't, also, we're, I'm not clear on whether or not Mark was still a virgin, but he definitely got killed off before he was able to have the sex that he kept wanting. <laughs>
0: yep. and for pissing on a tree too, like what I, what an American asshole thing to do! Like I definitely love how they're kind of he's out of all the group, he's definitely depicted as like the most ish american one of them all like just no concern for the cultures or traditions of this place but um. how
1: like exactly how can you not assume that the entire site that you're on is sacred like that's baffling to me but it's also an american thing much like as when pele pointed out to uh chris who asked if he could join in the dance and pele says well you know you can just jam yourself right on in there you're an american
0: <laughs> yep i like that line that was great so <laughs> um yeah. i guess yeah. okay so i guess i need to answer my favorite kill so my favorite yeah. kill of course as Joe's also said is the um very cathartic amazing ending to christian being burned <laughs> in the bear suit but since that one is not <laughs> But, since you' also kind of had a second favorite kill since since that's the predictable one that I think everyone <laughs> likes, my yeah. second favorite kill is the one where we see the two elderly people jump off the oh. cliff because it is that is really the first like gore in the entire film, and it is just so like you, you know it's gonna happen, but you're not sure how much is going to show and then it kind of at first it shows it kind of from a long shot but then they kind of do this close-up and you just see like the face being obliterated on the rock is so disturbing and gross and sickening and everything I love and also hate about horror all in one and so it so that is just I guess the most shocking kill even though it's going to happen and just really well done from a special effects and and visual way too so um, yeah that would be my pick
1: I was I was I was thinking about the special effects part in the most interesting place. You know, it wasn't them on the cliff, it wasn't the people falling off the cliff. It was when the old man survives and he looks at his leg and it's next to him because it broke off. And I'm like I'm thinking about the 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 makeup and costume design and all of that that went into making that little that little uh image my my reaction to this kill to the or the kill of the pair it was kind of like in a liminal space because on the one hand i i know i'm watching a horror movie that's doing this for shock value because that's what horror movies do right but i was also thinking and i feel kind of wrong but i was also thinking this is the most elegantly shot kill (laughs) I have ever seen, I literally thought to myself that that little scene alone, that sequence, the the, the the ritual suicide, it could be its own video clip on the sixth floor of the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. You know where they keep like the video installations and they show like all those, you know, wild and, and bizarre uh, videos that are artsy fartsy. I think it would make a perfect fit on the sixth floor. <laughs>
0: I agree one hundred percent.
1: Or 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 for you being a Washingtonian at the Hirshhorn.
0: Oh yeah yeah, I I now that the Smithsonian's are slowly opening, I want to go back there. I haven't been there in ooh probably five or six years. I'm ooh that.
1: yeah. I had a um. I had a. I had gay romantic drama at the Hirshhorn once, but that's Me another podcast too. for another day. Oh my
0: God. <laughs> now we need to hear each other's stories off-, <laughs> off air because I went on a first date with somebody to the Hirshhorn Museum, which is such a weird place to go on a first date to, by the way. But it's,
1: I, <laughs> I want to hear your story. It's just a weird place for gay drama to erupt. And yet it did. It did.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Happy Pride, you all. Anyway.
0: Okay, well, I guess our next movie, one of Joe's picks. Ooh,
1: yes, and um, it's also the oldest one that
0: we're doing, right? The furthest uh, for back, this first season. Yep. Yeah. Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, nineteen
1: sixty. E e e e
0: e. I might. Yes, I might rewatch the really weird nineteen ninety eight Psycho remake. Why? Just in my prep for this, I don't know. I'm on the fence, right. but it's free streaming on uh, Peacock, right. so maybe I'll watch it. I don't know.
1: You know, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna take a page from your the spicy takes that you've been doing in honor <laughs> of Pride Month, and um, oh, you should see y'all should see Pace's social media. Um, their posts are public. Uh, I, 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 set to Many public, of them, I? not all, but most are. Well, yeah. well, the spicy takes are set to public, Many and, yeah. and there
0: uh, are friends only just because they're a little too spicy. But most, sure, are, sure. most of the spicy are public.
1: And so, pesos decided that you know, with with Pride Month, to just go all out in celebrating Pride by you know critiquing the strange lives of uh, you know non queer people. <laughs> Um, But also, you know, our community, you know, is not immune to critique. And um, you mentioning that you might want to watch the shot for shot remake of Psycho reminds me of how I think Gus Van Sant should no longer be a thing. He should have never been a thing. I think Hollywood needed one gay guy director who was the bare minimum of good (laughs) to prop him up as saying, hey, here's a gay guy director. I know, what a bitchy thing to say. I said what I said.
0: Love it. <laughs> oh my god, I have opinions. Come back next week for this, for more of these <laughs> spicy opinions. Okay, well, are we ready for our outro then?
1: I think we're ready to call it a night. Uh, thanks for joining us, y'all. Yep,
0: yeah, well, that's it for our show. Our theme music was by Matt May, who also edited this episode. Horror Nerds at Church releases every Thursday. Please comment, rate, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media Facebook and Instagram at Horror Nerds at Church and Twitter at H N A C Pod for all the latest updates about upcoming films, news, and other announcements. Until next time, if your boyfriend is a shitty as Christian, break the fuck up with him. Come on, you can do so much better. You're a queen. I believe in you.
1: Or, you know, shove him into a bear costume made from the freshly killed corpse of a bear and burn him in a temple.
0: Either one. Either (laughs) one. Heard it here, folks. They is saying that you can... Either of those are acceptable ways. No, No, please don't kill people. We're not going to advocate for that. But yes.
1: Exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you are part of a
0: cult, then go for it. Like, if that's your thing and scandinavia but
1: uh, yeah yeah I mean, oh my goodness did you think rose Nyland knows about what's been going on in in her homeland of scandinavia completely different podcast
0: <laughs> well she probably does <laughs> I can't even be surprised if that's one of those saint olaf stories that we haven't heard yet there is there was, there's was a saint olaf story about somebody being a serial killer wasn't there yes there, there were one.
1: there was i i know i know that i know the whole joke <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um you know another podcast for another time right <laughs> all right thanks you okay. all
0: yep thanks bye bye
1: bye <laughs> <laughs>